Welcome to the Cooch Street Roundtable. Three years ago, Cooch Street kicked off a new monthly podcast that featured panelists James Bradley, Ian Mond, and myself, Jonathan Stran. We were joined by Gary Wolf and occasional guests to discuss a new or recently released science fiction or fantasy novel in detail and with a clear willingness to engage in spoilers. Like many Cooch Street projects, the monthly podcast lasted exactly seven episodes. Looking back, a first season. After a little thought and planning, we're back with an expanded bench and a more modest plan. A second season, five or so episodes, all due to come out between now and February. This time, the podcast will feature original panelists Bradley, Mond, and myself, and add Gary Wolf as a regular. We'll probably switch some people out from time to time and try to vary the group a little. But this is us, and this month we're discussing Annalee Newitt's sophomore novel, The Future of Another Timeline. But first, greetings. Hello, Jonathan. How are you today? I'm well, thank you, Jonathan. I'm uh, enjoying a lovely sunny Sydney morning. And Ian, welcome. Welcome from Melbourne. Yes, where it's also sunny after a poor day yesterday. It was very windy and wet. But uh, yes, hello. And then somewhere in the past, in a, probably a cold, wintry Chicago night, it's Gary. In fact, I'm expecting thunderstorms here any moment. So if you, if you hear sound effects outside, uh, it's, 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 it's uh, not the usual trucks rumbling by or tanks in the streets. It's, it's, it's the weather. It's been very warm here. It's very nice. Thank you very much. Enough. We are going into fall. The book we're discussing this month, The Future of Another Timeline, is published by Tor Books and should be in bookshops by the time this podcast goes out. The publisher describes it like this. From Annalee Newitz, the founding editor of io9, comes a story of time travel, murder, and the links we'll go to to protect the ones we love. 1992, after a confrontation at a Riot Girl concert, 17-year-old Beth finds herself in a car with her friend's abusive boyfriend dead in the back seat, agreeing to help her friends hide the body. The murder sees Beth and her friends on a path of escalating violence and vengeance as they realize many other young women in the world need protecting too. 2022. Determined to use time travel to create a safer future, Tess has dedicated her life to visiting key moments in history and fighting for change. But rewriting the timeline isn't as simple as editing one person or event. And just when Tess believes she's found a way to make an edit that actually sticks, she encounters a group of dangerous travelers bent on stopping it at any cost. Tess and Beth's lives intertwine as war breaks out across the timeline, a war that threatens to destroy time travel and leave only a small group of elites with the power to shape the past, present, and future. Against the vast and intricate forces of history and humanity, is it possible for a single person's actions to echo throughout the timeline? So that's the book. Let's delve, dive into it. What did you think of it, Gary? What are your thoughts? Um, I, I, I found it a fascinating novel, especially because it's so different from... Uh, from Lewis's first novel, Autonomous. There are some similar uh, gestures in it. There are some similar concerns. Uh, but I found it uh, maybe more interesting than most would because it uh, deals a lot with the history of my city, of Chicago, and with a period in that history that was uh, regarded, I think, by a lot of historians, fairly or unfairly, as a kind of turning point in the invention of the 20th century in, uh, in the United States and so forth and so on. I am curious as to why, uh, given what seems to be a very autobiographical setting, part of the novel is set, um, we should say this, part of this novel is set in an alternate timeline in the future. Part of it is set in 1992 in, uh, in Southern California, and part of it is set in Chicago in 1893 during the World's Columbian Exposition. All of that fits together uh, in terms of what we would expect um, um, 
from I, what I know about Annalee, except the Chicago part. And I'm curious as to how that came about and why that became a particular focus for the kinds of historical tensions that she wants to get at in all these different time periods. What do you guys think of the using uh, time travel as a tool to discuss what's happening today? Because I think that that is the core thing that's happening here. Annalee has decided that this is a way to look at the, I guess, the underlying anxiety we have about our time. Uh, do you do you feel there's something to that? What, what do you think about it, James? I think it's fascinating. I mean, I think what's interesting to me is that there's been a series of novels in the last year or two kind of using both using time travel as a as a technique for as Gary said to kind of look at this idea of history how it works how how we might edit it and change it but which are also coming at it often from a uh, I guess from a particular kind of political perspective so I mean you, there's this one there's the how to win a time war book which I have to confess I've not read yet there's also the Sandra Newman book the heavens which came out earlier this year and is about a woman in a version of the present day, so it's not quite our world. It's a world, I think, where Al Gore won the 2000 election. And she's slipping sideways in dreams, both back into the past, where she's tangled up in a kind of plot about Shakespeare, and then back to the present. And each time she does, the world moves closer to ours, but becomes less positive. So it's this kind of slide away from utopia in the novel towards dystopia. But, I mean, that kind of sense that... History is something that can change in unpredictable ways. It is something that you see being talked about a lot at the moment. And you, you, Ian, what did you think about that? The, the role of time travel in, in this novel and what uh, perhaps Newitz was trying to do with it? Yeah, so I suppose <clears throat> um, time travel's always been a form of activism, act, activism, whether it's going back to shoot Hitler and stop the, you know, the, the killing of the Jews or whatever it is, that, that form of editing since the day the time travel narratives have been uh, written about, have been a form of uh, activist or protest-type uh, narratives, except never as overt as we're seeing right now. Now, I mean, now it's, 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 it's said loud and clear. It's not an allegory. It's not a metaphor. It's well and truly on the tin, written on the tin. And I found that really interesting in this book. It is, this is an activist book, and it's one that uses time travel to do that. And, and, in, in differing ways, but but fascinating because of that, because it's it's just so obvious now. So you know, you, you start to think about time travel narratives over the last fifty years, and you think, well, they're all been like that, but not as overt as this, which is what I find so interesting. No, I agree. I think that time travel. If you, if you go back at the, the the idea of time wars of of change wars, uh, is is a very old idea in science fiction. Paul Anderson had a series of stories. Uh, Fritz Leiber had a series of stories. As, Asimov's The End of Eternity. But those were all game-playing kinds of narratives. And now what we're seeing is, um, I think, a, a certain sense of urgency about time travel that is not there in those earlier things. It's no longer a game for science fiction writers. And my guess is that there are two things that may be driving this, even though they're not directly addressed in any of the novels we're talking about. One is... The idea of climate change, which means that the, the, the idea that you know decisions we make, small decisions we make day to day, have incrementally uh, uh, enormous consequences, and the other is the the sense of what's happened really to world politics in the last couple of years. What kinds of things did not only the United States but England, uh, France, Italy? What did these countries do? 
four or five years ago that led to where they are now. So I think the idea that we change history is a very volatile and a very political idea in a way it's never been before. Going back to that question of climate change, which I do think is one of the things a lot of these novels are about, one of the things I, – I, I think you're absolutely right about that kind of sense and in this book particularly about incremental decisions. But one of the things that it's important to keep in mind about climate change is there's a level at which it is kind of a crisis about temporalities in its very essence. I mean yeah. it's a thing about this kind of collapsing of different time time frames into each other. So, you know, the geological collapses into the human. But one of the things also about it is that kind of sense that it's not just the small decisions we make today have a big impact. It's that we have to live with the decisions that were made 30 years ago because of the time delay of the way climate change happens. Mm-hmm. We're kind of living in the climate, you know, we're living in the climate of the past, but we've already determined the future. So there is this kind of sense that we're living in a world where we've already determined a future that we can't escape from. And these novels become, I think, a, a quite deliberate way of escaping that that conundrum i don't know if i would say escaping the conundrum so much as trying to call attention to it i think one of the things that um is at work I, we, we probably we haven't really described the novel much jonathan you did i think a bit in the introduction oh, yeah i read the um, back cover copy but 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 essentially the contest here is between a, a group of 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 well, frankly, toxic males led by the real-life Anthony Comstock, but essentially a conspiracy of men who want to lock down a certain version of history, uh, who basically want to uh, shut down historical change in favor of, 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 of what they believe history ought to be. And I can't read that as an American citizen without thinking, this is exactly what's going on right now. People are trying to lock history into a mold that, uh, that they approved 30 years ago. Yeah, but Gary, what's interesting is that the timeline that Newitz is working with, the one that these characters are existing in in 1992 and 2022, mm. is one that's worse than our current timeline, given that at that point abortion is illegal. So when the right. novel opens, abortion is illegal. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, there's, there's an impression that uh, queer uh, politics is also frowned upon. Um, mm-hmm. So it's funny that... In this book, the intent is to move the course of history, in a sense, back to our timeline that we currently exist in, which we already believe is quite poor or shit, if I yeah, may use the word. Right. So, 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 the, the uh, technical term. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Newitz is taking what looks like a, a sort of dystopia into something that's slightly less dystopic that's our current existence right now. So I found that really interesting. Uh, I'm, I wasn't sure how to react to that because... I would have thought that the book would be um, – I'm glad that it's not an escapist piece of writing about escaping our current moment. Mm-hmm. It's dealing with our current moment, but it's actually dragging the narrative to our current moment, which still needs to be dealt with. And, and, and no, no, nowhere is Newitz saying, oh, and that's it. We've sorted it out. Abortion's now legal. We're good. There's still plenty of work to go. I don't think this novel ever says that. But it's interesting that it starts from such a poor point to take us well, to, back to the shit well, that we're I- in now. Actually, do you think that's an optimistic thing on or, or you know, choice on Newitz's part that she would see getting to where we are now, at least in terms of for this story in this book, as being a desirable outcome? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> I'm not sure I know the answer to that question, but I do think one of the things that's interesting in the book in that context is that, I mean, the thing that you – in a sense, it's front and centre of the book. It's a series of questions about gender relations and gender politics. But there's an underlying question about how history operates and an argument about whether, you know, you, you run on a great man history of theory or you run on an, right. uh, a history of theory where small changes make 
make the yeah. difference. And what she comes down quite hard on the side of is that the great men theory doesn't work. That it's about these small changes that happen along the way, and that's actually a really radical position because what she's arguing is that you know, kind of various forms of collective action. You know, in a sense, it's about a way of re-empowering ordinary people against this kind of sense of these exceptional people. And I, I think that, in an odd way, is quite quite a radical kind of argument for this book to be running. You know, that that it's not about celebrities and the famous hinge figures of history it's about all of us you know so that so in a sense i think it's optimistic in that sense because what it's making is an argument about the nature of political possibility underneath all of this but would it be would it have been more radical to have the novel be about changing our current moment as distinct from bringing a timeline that's already a bit stuck to our current moment I, I think, think or is that too, is that is that too controversial? <laughs> no, well, I'm saying is that too controversial? Because I, I don't think it's too controversial. I think one of the things I, it's a very rhetorical novel. It's a novel which very deliberately asks questions of the reader, and I think the central question that uh, that that Newitz wants the reader to think about is where is our timeline located in this? You know, are we in a timeline that's going to produce the 2022 that uh, that, that she begins with? Are we a timeline that somehow is descended from one or the other versions of the 1893 timeline? Um, and there are other timelines, and there's somebody who comes in from 500 years in the future. But I think she really wants readers to ask uh, where our timeline does fit in that. And I think starting with our timeline would have taken away that question, which is important to her. Mm. Yeah, fair enough. But I did, I did, James, I really did like that great man history versus the small changes made by communities. Although... It is slightly undercut by the fact, because one thing we haven't spoken about is that there's both a macro and a micro changing of the timeline here. So the macro is the Comstock stuff. The micro is uh, one of our our protagonists uh, actually going back to change her own future or oh. her own timeline. And so, again, it's, it, it, it's sort of this blurry line between the great man version versus the community making a change because this is where one single person does make a change to her own individual Timeline, so it does slightly muddy that water a bit, but then, but then that's fine. I mean, the book isn't trying to. Well, it's, I don't think it's necessarily trying to come with a binary on on this, but there is that muddiness that happens in the nineteen ninety two section of the book. You don't think that that's basically building a case study that shows that small changes have enormous effects on the individual and on the overall timeline? Yeah, possibly. It's just I felt that the point was more about that activism, about communities, if they band together and if they're strong enough, they can sway the, the timeline in some way, as distinct from great men who, uh, who make these changes. But fair enough. Well, I, 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 like that. I, I like that approach. I, I think that's an interesting way of looking at it. I had not thought in terms of the great man theory of history, but to some extent there's a, there's a similar struggle going on uh, in this novel uh, as was going on in Autonomous. And in Autonomous, basically, you have uh, basically – Renegade, a small group of independent people fighting against the giant pharmaceutical corporations, the, you know, the, the uh, David uh, and Goliath kind of thing. And the, the male fantasy of a, of a, of a uh, locked-in future is essentially a version of the great man theory. I mean, it's interesting that among the bad guys in this novel, there is a central figure. There is an Anthony Comstock, and he is treated by his followers as a great man. So to some extent, the novel becomes a contest between this uh, scrappy, uh, very uh, diverse, genderqueer group of women and a group of men organized in a kind of paramilitary historical force, 
in the in, in the shadow of what they believe to be one great man. I will say the the section of this book that probably gave me the most difficulty as a reader was the 1992 section, mostly because I think it's the section of the book that has the most varied tone. I think that's a fair thing to say. It is probably also in some ways the heart of the book because that's where we, we meet, you know, sort of Beth, her friends. Beth is a young teenage girl who's um, attending this uh, punk rock concert, this classic concert, as well as tying through as being where the, you know, the, the time, the time traveling geologist pops through as well to, to view it. Mm. And there is a lot of violence, um, very quite graphic violence. that I don't think don't, that I'm not necessarily convinced fits tonally with the rest of the story. And that kind of threw me off. I, I have to say a little bit, um, I, I, I'm reluctant to say that that kind of violence is unnecessary or unjustified in the text. I don't think that's true, but I think the way it's been blended into those sections isn't really consistent. And I often found, I found that that was what began to throw me out. And it might just be, and this is the thing we've sort of the enormous thing in the room that we've not really talked about yet, which is that here is this, frankly, genderqueer, diverse, interesting book that's been written by. Annalee, and we are all middle-aged white guys or older white guys or whatever else, and so we may not be the ideal group or I may not be the ideal reader for the book in some ways, but I found that's that's what troubled me the most, that that, that tonal shift that I didn't think worked as as well maybe as it could have. What did, it, what did you guys think? James? Um, look, I, oddly enough, I... I I noticed this when we were talking about it by email during the week, but I actually liked the sections in the 1990s the best. I mean, they they had a, I guess, a level of, they kind of felt felt, if that makes sense, in a way that exactly I, what I, I, I thought that, yeah, that I thought some of the, the later sections didn't feel. And I think there's a question there, which I'd actually really love to get to in a little while, about the way that history is handled in science fiction in general, which I think is quite interesting. But, I mean, I, I love those sections on because they, they, there's a kind of truth to them and a kind of emotional truth to them, which I really like. They feel inhabited. They feel, you know, kind of alive. Um, but I found that, that those kind of... And there's a series of swerves that happen in those, you know, where, where various kind of acts of violence happen and there's intrusions from the future and stuff. And I guess I... I'm not sure that I felt that they threw me off, that, that, that they, they threw me out in the way that they seem to have you. But I actually found myself quite enjoying that sense that the book was kind of zigging and zagging around and taking these kind of wild turns in those sections, which I actually found more exhilarating, I think, than the time travel stuff, um, w which is interesting to me. In an odd way, uh, this might be a book to talk about in a little while as well. What I liked about them is they reminded me of another book which is quite like this um, in some ways, which is Michelle Tay's book, Black Wave, from a couple of years ago, which is oh, a very a strange – it's a wonderful book, um, which is a novel set in the, in the queer community in um, San Francisco in L.A. in the 1990s as the world is coming to the end and there's this woman who's – kind of in the middle of it all with her brother and she's obsessed with Matt Dillon. Um, and it is this funny, strange book about fictiveness and and the kind of reconstruction of reality. And in an odd way, 
in an odd way, this book and it sit quite close to each other. But but again, with that, what I really liked about it was its was its humour and its strangeness. And I think that's what I liked about the 1990s sections in this as well. That sense of playfulness and of just of, I guess, kind of unpredictability. You know, so so the things that threw you out, I think I actually responded to. It's possible because you've got you've got those sections alongside the eighteen ninety three sections, and that's that tonal shift going from historic. They're both historical fiction, but so different. And one is far more violent. And interestingly, it's not the eighteen ninety three section that's the most violent one. It's the nineteen ninety two section. And yeah, I mean, there were times when I was I found it confronting, but I think I'm meant to, and, and I accept that. I accept that it's meant to be vicious and angry, and and it's this pent up rage there. And yes, I could argue that. Those are the four girls who essentially go on a very short-term killing spree, and it is very short-term, mm. although the impression, is that it, the impression is that if time had not changed, it would have been a much longer killing spree, that you could argue, well, is it, does it actually fit their characters? It seems a bit abrupt and sudden. It's one event, but should that really catalyse all the other events? And then you think, well, actually, nah, okay, maybe not, but the anger and, the, and how the fury that's all pent up there, yeah, fine, I can see that creating that sort of momentum of rage, that then runs through these characters. And I'm, well, I, I, I like, yeah, sorry. Well, I was going to say, I think it goes back to what Gary was talking about, about the novel being in some level a very rhetorical novel. And, I mean, there's a level at which, I mean, certainly they, they go and kind of, the murders happen, and there's a level at which they don't even really seem to impact on the characters. You know, I mean, they, they just go, the kind of emotional blowback of that kind of behaviour isn't really felt in the book. But, I mean, that is that kind of sense that the book is kind of leaping forward all the time and, and kind of not actually very interested in, in those kinds of questions is, is of a piece with that kind of rhetorical sense, that sense that this is a polemical book, that this is a book that's trying to, to kind of say something. It's not very interested in all of that kind of business of fiction. Uh, some and, of the time. and I think that's why the 19... I tend to agree with you, James, about the 1992 sections. They seem to me to be felt sections, felt... The writing that was observed, writing of things that, that Annalee, as a writer, has noticed, as opposed to things that she's researched. Uh, the, the 1992 sections are very angry, but they're not without a kind of dark humor. I mean, you do have the character of Beth, who I thought was fascinating, and I thought her family was fascinating. She has this completely mm. bonkers father who just reverses the rules of the household uh, on, on a whim, and in, in, in a way that seems absurdist. I could see him showing up in, uh, in, in, in some kind of, I don't know, absurdist play where he's just... Uh, uh, a parody of an awful Kaufman and the heart crazy grandfather character, um, but then you, but then Beth has to deal with him, and and she d- does deal with him. But you can imagine the kind of anger and fury that this generates in her, which she doesn't act on. But then she has her friend Lizzie, who is almost all id in this section of the novel. We later find out more about Lizzie, of course. Uh, but it seems to me that this is uh, nineteen ninety two really has. Uh, a, a deliberately balanced tension between repressed anger and expressed anger in those two characters. Actually, I'm curious about one thing, and this is deep into spoiler zone, so I guess people can skip it or not if they wish. The 1992 section is based around the friendship between Beth and Lizzie, uh, their attendance at this concert, other things that happen, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, the way that they murder uh, Lizzie's boyfriend, I think it is, and then somebody somebody else in a few future attacks. And at least in the early part of the novel where 
Tess, this time-traveling geologist, comes back through time and tries to stop what Beth is doing. And we find out that Tess is Lizzie, you know, um, to what ex- how well do you think that worked? I think that actually was a really effective way of looping her story together. But did you guys feel like that was something that functioned well in the story? Made sense? It genuinely caught me off guard, which I didn't expect. Mm-hmm. So I thought that, I thought it was really effective, yes. Yeah, I, I think the only question I had, I assumed that Lizzie must be Jewish as well as Beth because Lizzie was remembering Jewishy stuff. That sounds terrible, mm-hmm. Jewishy stuff. <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, which is why, yeah, okay, well, I'm allowed to. Um, which is why I connected, uh, I, I did what, which, which is what Newitz wants you to do, which is connect uh, Tess with, with Beth, not with Lizzie. But... So I wondered if there was a slight cheat there, but but overall, no, it was a very it was a very effective um, turnaround. Yeah. Okay. I'll edit this. Well, part moving, well, well, let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the 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 historical business. I mean, one thing we haven't talked about, and I'm curious as to your reactions to this. Um, this is a very unusual device for time travel. Uh, it's one of the few I can't. Uh, offhand, I can't think of any, but I'm sure there are other time travel novels in which time travel has essentially been a part of human history since the beginning. There are these geological formations at, I think, five places around the globe where if you tap on them in a certain rhythm, they open up what amounts to wormholes to different times, I guess. Um, and that enables them to – that enables the narrative to – to go back in time thousands of years to bring in a character. What did you all think about that uh, use of a time travel device? It certainly avoids the technology issue. Nobody has to invent time travel. Nobody uh, has a time machine, so to speak, of. But um, a, a lot of time, it seemed to me, was spent explaining the rules of time travel that are inherited uh, with learning about these geological formations. I loved it. I love the time travel in this book. I really, I think that's actually the, that's what that what what I found the most thrilling the the uh, the way she works it through. Because every time I had a question about this doesn't make sense. If in eighteen ninety three everyone knows about time travel, wouldn't people be X, Y, and Z? She answers it. She yeah, answers she it by saying, yeah. by setting specific limitations in the in the in the system, and and it is a technology because there is an interface, and there's one of the subplots is about breaking that interface to lock yeah. the, the time travel. Well, it's not a subplot, it's the main plot. Um, but I, I, I loved how she worked through it all. I love the natural feel of it, uh, that there's a, this an enigmatic, mysterious aspect to it, which doesn't really get resolved, which is fine by me. I, I thought mm-hmm. that was brilliant. Uh, no, I I don't think, I like you, Gary, I don't think I've seen it this way before, where I, it's, I, it's I, so I, embedded. And, I, and I, I'll go with you, Gary, because you've read a bazillion science fiction novels. So... Uh, if you've not seen it, I don't think anyone has. So, uh, so good, <laughs> really, really, really good. Uh, yeah, I, I was impressed. Okay. Well, Jonathan, what did you think of it? Oh, of the time travel mechanism and how it's built into the yeah. story? I, th- I thought it was interesting that she focused more on, if you like, the impact of it than the mechanism of it. I mean, you talk about the description of it, but really... The if you like the science, the science of it really is never explained, and I don't think ever needs to be, because at the mm-hmm. end of the day, it's a MacGuffin for moving story around, so you can look at story from different angles, and I think that works really well. And probably the thing that she does most effectively in that space is make sure that 
you don't you're not left. I mean, as Ian was touching on, with a feeling of unresolved questions about it, because after all, you it, up to a point, you want to keep that stuff, particularly in a book that reads the way this one does and has the focus it does. You want to keep that stuff off stage as much as possible. You want to keep the characters at the front of the at the front of the stage. You want to th- keep the issues that you're discussing through the text uh, at the front of the stage. The major issues of activi- activism that flow back and forth, and she does that really, really nicely. I think. I would flip around a little bit on the discussion of time travel, though, and touch on something that w- we were talking about before we started, and that is: is it? F- reasonable to criticize uh, the future of another timeline for being such an American book, for seeing American events as having such devastating effects throughout the history of the world, because that's very much what it is. I mean, on one hand, I kind of feel like you have an American writer writing a book that's being published in America. It's reasonable, but does it fail to allow agency for the rest of the world's timeline, or can you only fit one story into a story? James, what do you think? (laughs) Um, Look, I think that's one of the aspects of the book I found a bit frustrating. Um, I found that sense of American history is the history that determines the future of the world um, a little bit frustrating, I'd have to say. Um, and, And that sense that American debates about questions like abortion and gender are kind of stand in for the debates everywhere else, you know, because it seems to me that other countries, other cultures have quite different kind of conversations about these things going on. I mean, I do think that in an odd way that speaks to one of the things about the book, which is that I know Ian said he liked all of the time travel stuff, but there's another much stranger book lurking somewhere under the surface of this one about a world in which time travel is real and which time is a much more malleable strange thing because it's interesting that she talks about the idea of deep time into the past so there's moments where they go back to the Ordovician mm. and the Jurassic and things like that but there's no sense of the deep future you know so where are the travellers coming from 400 centuries in the future from 50,000 centuries in the future so that sense that you know that you've got this kind of you know, and then that, that image of geology runs through the novel. But, you know, geology is something that persists into the deep future as well. And, and mm-hmm. I guess I was interested by the idea, by, you know, given given some of her writing on this subject in nonfiction, which is very, very interesting, um, that you don't have that sense of the kind of weirdness of all of this or of the depth of time in both directions happening in the book. So, like I say, I felt like there was a stranger book sitting underneath the surface of it. But in a way, oh. that, that focus on the American stuff is kind of symptomatic of the fact that that book's not there. I think, no, but it's there with the character that pops up from the 23rd, 2370 or wherever. Uh, that That's just an impression, but it is very monolithic. When that person appears, you feel like that history itself is narrowed down to one monolith-type situation, one ideology, one way of thinking, and that every all countries, all, all ways of viewing the world are just uh, are siloed into that one view. So, and that there's nothing that then branches off from that. And so when, when, when they do save the day, without giving away spoilers, which although Jonathan already has, but still, mm. when they do save the day, there's no, you're right, Brett James, there's no impression of, well, what would that mean for that future? But also, what does it mean for that deep time? As you, for what, what happens beyond that? So, uh, and that is part of the problem of making it so centric around America or American history. 
Yeah, and look, I'm reluctant to – I mean, I don't want to push that argument too hard because I don't want to engage in this isn't the book that I thought it should be um, because that's not actually the case. But it did seem to me that that kind of – the kind of focus on contemporary events and very recent history and on American culture does kind of restrict the book at at one level. Now, having said that, I actually think that that doesn't matter at some level because it seems to me that to go back to this idea that it's a book that's about – about a kind of political conversation with the president, the book that's about a political conversation with America right now. You know, so those questions are, in a sense, not really relevant to the book either. So, I mean, I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm criticising the book for not being what it was, for not being what I wanted it to be. But it, I, I do think that there, that is kind of – you come back again to that idea that this is a highly, highly political book engaged in a, a very – direct conversation with, you know, a very particular slice of global culture at the moment. And it really is an activist book, isn't it? I mean, the, the entire action of time travel is a state in, in this book, or the actions that have been taken by these two group, groups, the Daughters of Harriet, uh, led by Beth and, and Tess, mm-hmm. and the Comstockers and, and, and their associates, they are both politically activist groups pushing for a particular outcome. So mm. what does you know the future of, of another timeline say about the possible effectiveness of acti- activism? It seems to me it's a really positive statement, if you like, about two conflicting ideas, about the possibility of having one idea actually come out triumphant at the end in a way that is beneficial to everyone involved, pretty much. Um, and I think that becomes a useful statement to be making at the time that we're living in. Does that sound like a reasonable assessment? Yeah, I mean, I think that goes back to that idea that I was talking about earlier about the kind of it's a book yeah. that's actually about kind of political possibility and the possibility of collective action and a, a mm. series of questions like that. Just to go back really quickly to what I was saying before, yeah. I was thinking about what Ian was saying about the future being monolithic, and I guess that sense that the future has narrowed and disappeared, now that I'm thinking about it slightly more, um, is actually important because it is this kind of sense that we lose the future if what we do is we allow these, you know, kind of imposers of a particular kind of political ideology in the Comstockers to win over. And what's interesting, I was just thinking about then, is another time travel book that's just come out recently is the, the that terrific Alastair Reynolds um, novella, Permafrost, which in fact yeah. you published, Jonathan. But yeah. one of the things that I love in that are the glimpses of this future where, again, the future has disappeared. You know, the future has become this monolithic, unvaried, and in that in that also contemporarily unvaried kind of space. So, I mean, I, perhaps I'm arguing against what I was saying 30 seconds ago about there being a, a stranger book underneath. But I mean, perhaps perhaps now that I think about it a little bit more, that 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 idea of this kind of monolithic future actually becomes something very intense and and quite, I, I guess, quite powerful. I think there's an argument for – there is an implication of a monolithic future. And just speaking speaking as the only American in the group, I think you're right. This is a, this is a novel whose polarities are between Southern California culture and, and, and the Chicago Columbian Exposition. But I think there are – I think there's a sense of the fluidity of time. I mean there, there's, there are stories in it which are implied which were not told. It's certainly true that in the uh, 2022 sections, it seems to be a kind of – dystopian America in which abortion has never been legal. But they remember a past in which Harriet Tubman became an influential senator. Something happened in the 19th century, which was presumably a kind of 
positive shift in the timeline. We're not told about that, but we're I, I was left with the question, wait a minute, how did Harriet Tubman become a senator? What <laughs> happened to that? What kind of civil war history is not in this book, but is but is hinted at uh, throughout? And I think the same thing happens when you looked at the uh, various sites of these magical geological locations. Uh, none of them, interestingly enough, are in the United States. If you want to travel to the Chicago Columbian Exposition, you have to end up, I think, you have to travel to Manitoba and take a train and riverboats and things like that to get to Chicago. There's some scenes set in, in Jordan and in Petra. Uh, and then we're told there are also these things. There's one in Australia. I'm looking it up right now. Uh, there's one in Mali. Um, and uh, we don't hear anything about those. So I think the novel is full of implications of tributaries of history that we don't really find out about. And I suspect that a lot of that was fairly deliberate on Newitz's part. I, I suspect yeah, that one of the things I... Uh, uh, Ian? No, go ahead, James. Oh, I was going to say, one of the things I really liked about that, which I thought was wonderful, is there's a, a moment, a couple of moments where they're talking to a First Nations man up in, um, it's Manitoba, isn't it? It's Manitoba. Um, about, you know, about, and one of the restrictions in the novel is you can't travel into the future, you can only travel into your past and then come back. Um, and he says, well, you know, only you white folk don't understand that you can move in both directions through these things. <laughs> and, and I actually thought that was wonderful because, I mean, it kind of speaks really powerfully to a series of kind of indigenous ideas about the way kind of time and cosmogony are kind of configured, particularly, you know, particularly in kind of Australian Aboriginal cultures or indigenous mm-hmm. cultures here in Australia, but I suspect also in a number of those First Nations cultures over there. And I found that that kind of implication which is never really teased out i really really loved because it was that kind of sense that it was speaking back to this this conception of time that we've got in the book is actually just one there's another exactly. one sitting over there which is deeper and older and more interesting and I, I i thought that was wonderful that 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 kind of unexplored moment so did you guys feel that the the presence of time travel as an action in the narrative was treated convincingly. And what I mean is, if you read the book, and if I read the book correctly, everybody pretty much knows about time travel. It, it, it may not be yeah. a commonly, an easily, a readily accessible thing to, you know, to, to anybody. You have to go through this, there's a, 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 you know, a, a MacGuffin where you have to basically spend four years in proximity to a time travel device to be able to use it. Right. Uh, which is, a, I guess, a great sacrifice in terms of your, you know, your, your life to be able to do it. But it seems to me that surely this idea that everything could be rewritten through changes in time, if you knew that through the, the, uh, through the passage of history, it would have a far more profound effect on how society functioned and how people talked about society. And I'm not sure that I saw that investigated as much as it could have been. No, and I no, think that's I, the stranger novel I was talking about before. Yeah, that I that's felt a much, yeah. I mean, the, 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 my sense. I actually is, like that though. I actually like that. I, I thought that uh, it sort of hints to this idea. Not, I think it suggests this idea that people simply get along with their lives. That yes, there's this embedded time travel in throughout history, but, and people may be aware of it, but they can't access it because of rules. And so they just get along with their lives. And yes, they, they their lives may be edited on a daily basis, but they can't know because they're not part of the the edits. They no one is aware of the edits unless you're actually fully involved in the edits. Right. So as far as you're concerned, I mean, if it, ha- if it was happening today, 
you would say, uh, well, I can't travel because I'm not sitting near a, well, there's one in Australia, but let's say I'm, it's in uh, Western Australia, so maybe Jonathan can access it, but I can't. At least I'm not going to go live in Western <laughs> Australia for four years. Sorry, sorry, Jonathan. Um, so all the edits that occur are not going to, I'm never going to remember them anyway. So I'll just go live on my life. I mean, you could argue that some people, and one thing she doesn't explore, and maybe this is what you're hinting at, is people who would just be in this state of constant anxiety, as in not knowing whether the history is being changed on a daily basis or, you know, what, what's the point of anything? You know, this ennui about what's the point of living if you don't, if, if any action you make could be rewritten. But I just think it's, at most of us just keep going. And I think that's the point, partly, that we just keep doing our shit. Well, actually, well, that- to, to argue against myself, is the thing that actually happened or would logically happen is that nobody would believe in time travel. In the sense that if you had a bunch of people talking about time travel and yet no evidence that it ever happened, would you ever believe in it? But you can see the technology. I mean, you can go to Australia and see the site where the tappers are and oh, all that sure. stuff. And you can yeah, see people thing disappear there, but, into a wormhole. So, but, so, so well, I mean, yes. Yeah, but fair enough, you're right. There's an aspect to the novel, and maybe maybe it's uh, maybe it's kind of this, a secret novel underneath the novel that, that James is talking. There, there, there's a very clear Philip K. Dick aspect to this whole thing that reality can be shifting under you at all times. You don't have any control over it. I suspect a really stone cold hard science fiction reader would could make could make the argument that if time travel had been essentially manipulable for the last ten thousand years that we would not even recognize the world that results from it. It would have been changed so many ways and in so, uh, in so many radical transformations that he would have kind of, we would be living in a kind of, I don't know, Jack Vancey, an alternate magical world that we don't even recognize. <laughs> but I'm glad she doesn't do that, though. I'm, I'm glad she doesn't do that. But the point is, she's writing a political novel, and the political points, she starts, this is not a novel that starts with a, inventing a technology for time travel and trying to logically think through what would happen over the next 10,000 years, it starts with a political position and backs into its time travel mechanisms and its, uh, and, and, and its historical research. And I think that's a perfectly legitimate... Uh, this is, this, they're coming for me now, if you could hear that on the... Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Oh, look, I think you could go both ways on that, yeah. I mean, you're right. It, it, it probably should be, in real reality, a chaos. But, mm. uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I, for me it worked. I just, I think you just, I just know how humans are. We, we just move along with the flow. And I think, yeah, I, I, I was, I was I, okay with that. I tend to agree. What do we think could I, could about... Could I ask uh, a general... Sorry, yeah, yeah. No, no, go, please do. Can I ask a question? I I was curious reading this, and I found myself thinking about the relationship of science fiction to the past. And one of the things that's striking to me about the 1890s sections of this book is that it is very carefully researched Uh and has surprisingly little sense of historicity. So there's lots of detail, and there's not much sense of it being an inhabited time. Um, And I... 
you know, that, that that's partly deliberate. Um, you know, you've got the translation of a kind of fairly contemporary political idiom into that 1890s world. So there's not very much sense to kind of, not much of an attempt to kind of inhabit the mindset of people who might live in that world. Now, that's always highly problematic in historical fiction. There's a wonderful line of mm-hmm. Henry James's about anything that was, you know, all historical fiction is bunk because you can't inhabit the minds of people that you didn't know. But it's a quite, there is a kind of odd relationship to the past in science fiction and you see it i think represented in science in time travel novels and you see it i think also in things like steampunk where there's a kind of both a frustration with the past as what it was but a lack of interest in doing the kind of imaginative inhabitation that you get in kind of historical fiction kind of literary historical fiction so you know you don't if you're getting a science fiction novel with history in it, it doesn't look like Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall. It looks like Connie Willis's Doomsday Book, yeah. you know, which is highly researched but not very inhabited, if you know what I mean. Um, and I was just kind of curious about that because it does seem to go to the way that history is regarded in science fiction and regarded in this novel, which is almost as a problem, but something that's also there to be kind of rewritten and played with but not something which is to be thought about in its own in its own right so you don't have any of that sense that you get with a lot of historians now where they say what we need to do is to go back into the moment and think about what it was like then before we knew how this story would come out and that's even there in a book like this where in fact it's about how do we make the story come out differently do you know what i mean it's still part of a kind of history that we know um, and, and you don't feel that the people living in the history don't really know how it's going to come out. And I just think that's there, there's something quite interesting going on there in in the kind of way history is thought about in science fiction more generally. I don't know if anyone else had thoughts about. It. Well, well, why science fiction as opposed to why science fiction in particular as opposed to any kind of historical fiction? Um, well, but I mean, I think it's interesting if you compare kind of literary historical fiction with the way that you get the recreation of the past in science fiction, um, which I think it tends to be, I think it tends to be thinner, I think it tends to be more instrumental, um, and I think it tends to be often a bit more surfacey. And I just think that's interesting because in an odd kind of way, so much of science fiction is about this kind of really careful evocation of alternative presents and alternative futures. Mm-hmm. But I think that the evocation of the past is often quite, quite kind of cursory. And, and that's, do you think that's the case in this book, James? Do you think do you think that this is more like a movie set? The eighteen ninety three of this book is, which is why the nineteen ninety two is so much more visceral because it feels less like a movie set. Um, I think there is an element of that, you know. And look, and I think to be honest, I think that's partly a decision that's been made by by Newitz. You know, I mean, it's about kind of the past becomes a way of talking about the present and you don't want to get bogged down in trying to kind of do a, a recreation of the past or an attempt to inhabit the past. Um, but I just, I just, I was just very struck reading it by, you know, most of the, most of the representations of the past in science fiction tend to be ones which are at some level frustrated with it and want to change it. But well, isn't that because of the basic mission of what science fiction is doing? Science fiction is asking what-if questions and science fiction is problem-solving. And generally when time travel or when the past is laid in front of the 
the reader by, by uh, an author in a time travel tale. The role is one of voyeur passing through, not one directly engaged in what's happening, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. And it's because you're yeah. treating the whole task of going back in, uh, uh, going back to the past, not as anything to do with inhabiting that at all, but actually about, as you were saying, problem solving the future. So you, or- you, 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 pass through and that's that's why the majority even then of the people that are encountered of of the viewpoints that you see in this book and in other similar books are those of the uh, person people from future going back i mean if you go look and uh, and read uh god's monsters and lucky peach which is the kelly robson time travel uh, queer time travel story that came out last year it does a similar kind of thing it takes a discrete group of people back in time they travel in their own bubble and come back and it's all watched even when they interact with people it's quite on a quite a shallow basis that's what makes permafrost interesting it does something different altogether but it does it also is not particularly engaged with making that history three-dimensionally lived in because again well, it's that, that it's, it's that saving the seeing the the past is generally about saving the present or the future well, the perspective from which the past is viewed is that of the present or the future. And I think that's I, – I think you're absolutely right, Jonathan, that it, characteristically what we see is the past as observed from a contemporary or near, near future perspective, which is why Connie Willis, for example, has her Oxford historians uh, being essentially the point of view characters in her historical fiction. Uh, interestingly, at the same time I was reading Annalee Newitz's novel, I was reading another novel about the history of Chicago. It's – uh, Elizabeth Hand's really wonderful murder mystery, uh, Curious Toys, about the outsider art, artist Henry Darger in 1915. Um, and uh, Liz doesn't really know Chicago history. She had to research this. She, but there's a sense, because she's not writing this from a 21st century perspective, that she really works at getting inside the minds, well, getting inside the mind of Henry Darger, the outsider artist, is a problem by itself. But getting inside the minds of people who would have been working at the movie studios in Chicago, who have been working at this amusement park, the police, uh, it's, it's, it's a kind of much more immersive kind of narrative than you get in science fiction. So I think, I think James, you have a point that science fiction treats, tends to, as a convention, treat history differently mm. from, um, from historical fiction. And when a science fiction writer, for example, Nicola Griffith and Hild, decides to immerse herself in the distant past, she can do so very persuasively uh, because she lacks or denies that perspective of 20th and 21st century observers of the past. It's a difference between trying to create a lived past versus trying to portray an observed past for the purpose of your narrative. Yeah, so it's not. I'm not making a criticism. I'm just. I think it's an interesting, an interesting relationship. It's funny. I was thinking um, another book uh, which sits in this kind of odd historical science fictional space is Paul Kingsnorth, the um, environmental uh-huh. writer, wrote a, the, the, the book The Wake, which is about uh, a, a kind of England without the Normans. You know, but it's a kind of apocalyptic novel set back in. Is it the 11th century? Ian, I've, I've, now I'm yeah, blanking yeah. on it slightly, but it is essentially. A science fiction novel about the apocalypse, huh. written in this strange historical language, in the same way that well, something like well, it's, it's, it's the most accurate. Do- it's yeah, it's yeah, except Ridley Walker was genuinely invented, whereas this yeah. he's really trying to mimic the dialect of the time. He's he's worked mm. very hard. Uh, it's 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 an amazing book uh, it is. worth reading. 
It is, but it's, it's interesting to me because it, it's essentially a science fiction novel that comes from outside the science fiction world mm. set in history, and that makes it kind of an odd, an odd counterexample. Yeah, no, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a criticism I was making. It was just a kind of an, an observation that came to me while I was reading the book, which is I feel that history ends up being treated quite differently in science fiction most of the time to the way it gets treated in, in kind of literary historical fiction. So it's just it was an interesting... I think Claire North has a good crack at it in her latest novel, uh, The Pursuit of William Abbey, which I've just read and which oh. Jonathan and I have uh, just written the review for. Uh, <laughs> thanks. Uh, where that is purely a historical novel set in the late 19th, early 20th century, I think uh, about 1870s to the First World War. It's only through the perspective of one character, well, mostly through one character who's of the time. It is a more fantasy than science fiction, but it's very much of the time. It's not about changing the time. It's it's very much creating those echoes with the current moment without trying to change the current moment. So it, it feels probably less than, than like a movie set, as you sort of hinting at, James, than, than, uh, than the, the probably science fiction novels that do a similar thing. And that might be because it's fantasy. I don't know. I don't know if there's a... A distinction there, but this one, yeah, it, it's very heavily researched. And also, what's interesting about the North is that, uh, unlike this book we're discussing, it's not a centric, one country centric view. The character actually covers every continent, and we see history of that four decades through multiple uh, diverse perspectives. Uh, yes, very Europe focused because that was what was happening. Europe essentially controlled the world, but. It's seeing it through different eyes that makes it so, even if it's through one character, that makes it so interesting and so much richer and possibly this sort of American-centric, sorry to come back to that point, but that one monolithic type view. So, but, yeah, anyway. I'm I'm, I'm curious to ask um, the the three of you in in general because I I do have an obvious uh, different kind of interest in in, um, in Annalise's novel based on living in Chicago. And that is, to some extent, there have been a number of books. There have been nonfiction books. There have been uh, a, a, a famous nonfiction book, Eric Larson's The Devil in the White City, a few years ago about H.H. H. Holmes, the serial killer who visited the Chicago World's Fair. The 1893 World's Fair in Chicago was it, – it, it, it's kind of a magnet for science fiction writers and because it was such mm-hmm. a science fictional vision of the future. It was this utopian community built along the uh, south – Part of the lakeshore, the white city. Uh, it was the 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 vision of the future for 1893. The first Ferris wheel was built there, for example. So it became the expression. It became the 1890s expression of American utopianism. And I think that uh, I don't know if that idea has been exported at all, or if that's clearly a, an American idea, or maybe clearly just a Midwestern idea. So the Lauren Bucus novel is set there as well, isn't it? Yes, right. Uh, yeah, and and I'm pretty sure there's a cycle of Michael Chabon stories set around the set around the um, World's Fair, the Columbian Exposition. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, no, I mean I'm certainly aware of it in that sense. I don't know that it occupies a lot of my psychic space in that sense, but it's certainly a, an awareness or an idea of that that exhibition. I mean, if you look at if you look important. at photographs of it, it, lo- it looks like it look the photographs of it look like Frank R. Paul paintings. They're just absurdly <laughs> utopian. Uh, um, and well, uh, and, uh, interestingly, I suspect it occupies that space in a way that something like the Great Exhibition in London doesn't necessarily, or even the the Great Exhibition in um, in Paris, which gave us the Eiffel Tower. Exactly. You know, which it's, are, it's, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it had. They have the same resonances of the Chicago well, it's one. It's the exactly. It's the American. Are you saying they don't, James? Because the one that I always think of is the London one, the Great Exhibition. That's the one that I'm acquainted yeah. with, and um, probably because Doctor Who goes and visits it so often. So uh, uh, that's probably where it's uh, filtered in for me. But because this, this Chicago, this was new to me. Sorry, I, I'm oh, maybe really? ignorant, but this. Oh, yeah, right. I mean, I know things are like you know the New York World's Fair and that sort of stuff, but this one has never pinged my radar. I don't know about you, Jonathan, but uh, maybe I don't read the right books. Uh, I've been peripherally aware of it, more aware of it, believe it, more aware, believe it not, of the, I think it was the Kansas City Olympic Games, which was far more interesting. But yeah, I was, <laughs> I was, I was aware of this, you know. Uh, I, I do have a thing on, you know, a, a question about what, what James was saying about time travel and historicity. And here's, it's this, do you think that if... Time travel treats the past as a as part of its problem solving exercise. Science fiction actually engages better with the past when we tell secret histories. That when you get a Tim Powers Declare kind of a book, that is a more immersive attempt to engage with, if you like, the the present of the past of being in the past. I think it's probably more immersive. I'm not sure that makes it better. It makes it different. You know, so I mean, I think yeah, yeah. the Newitz's treatment of the past is quite deliberate. Sure. I just thought it was interesting because it was representing something else. Sorry, before I stop, random historical detail about expositions. There was a duplicate of London's Crystal Palace built in Sydney. And do you know what happened to it? Oh, really? No. It burnt down. <laughs> Same as the one in London. <laughs> so there was a complete replica of it built here and it burnt down. Okay, yes, so, uh, just a completely parenthetical, another trivial story about a World's Columbian Exposition, or World's, World's Fair. The, 19th, the, the next World's Fair in Chicago after this 1893 exposition was in 1933, I think. And Ray Bradbury attended it as a 13-year-old. Um, and the slogan of that World's Fair which was one of these technology celebrations. If I'm not quoting it incorrectly, somebody will correct me. Was science discovers, technology invents, man adapts. And apparently that utterly terrified the 13-year-old Ray Bradbury, who then <laughs> went on, who then started thinking immediately about Fahrenheit 451. There you go. So can I can I can I slightly diverge? <laughs> of course. Because we haven't done that. We haven't done that, of course. No, not at um, all. Not at all. So um, the the two things that that uh, really struck me about this was there was that argument oh, maybe two years ago from certain people who, whose names won't be mentioned that science fiction is not political and that science fiction is all about adventures and ray guns and all that sort of stuff and it's escapist and yet you've got books like this and the trend is going in this direction where it's absolutely political and and also that it's uh, dealing with uh, queer issues, gender issues, and those sorts of things, and doing it in a way that is, and, and, and this book is entertaining. I, I was at no point bored by this book. I don't think you could possibly be bored by this novel. It, there's too much going on, possibly a little bit too much, but it, <laughs> it's, it, it is constantly, uh, as, uh, as James said, little swerves here and there. And uh, so, 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 so packaging what is, as you guys have said, rhetorical, the politics in a, in a package that's both pleasing to the eye, so to speak, but is still very powerful. And I am so glad that this trend has picked up because I, I keep coming back to people like Tom Dish, who no one ever speaks about anymore, but who was that 
who was very political in his fiction, and there were others. I'm just picking him out of the pack. Uh-huh. But, you know, very much in the 60s and 70s, obviously that new wave, but he in particular was very uh, caustic in the way he, he dealt with uh, political issues. And it's good to see it again, possibly a lot less uh, grumpy than Dish was, uh, although this is an angry book in many ways, and this, this you know, and, and, and all the good for it. And, you know, whether it's Red Clocks by Lenny Zumas or, I don't know, a bunch of other books that I could, if I could remember them, I could pick from the pack. Even uh, Claire North, the one I just read, The Pursuit of William Abbey, is a very angry book about colonisation, about enslavement and all that. This is brilliant. This is great. And it opened Fantastic. Out all, yeah, I, I, I agree. Mostly, mostly, by the way, coming from female writers, women writers. So it, it, it's brilliant. Yeah, I just wanted to say that. No, and, and, and it opens out in all kinds of different directions, which it clearly intends to do. The only, the only quibble I'd have with what you just said, Ian, is that uh, th- there was a view of science fiction as being apolitical. I think one of the things that, that Dish tried to call to our attention and that writers from Le Guin to Newitz, to, including Joanna Russ, tried to call our attention is that science fiction always was political. It simply was political in the sense of reasserting the hegemony that John W. Campbell, for example, represented. In other words, it was political in the sense of defending the white male Anglo-Saxon Protestant ethic that uh, that was always there in those space operas, but was never was, was never thought to be uh, something you should question or, uh, or or address. And now I think people are addressing it in all kinds of interesting ways. So you're saying the books were political by establishing the, or maintaining the status quo? Exactly. Yeah. Well, and what so things, yeah. Okay. I was going to agree with both of you and say I think that that trend in the books is fantastic. But I mean, it's part of a broader trend away from, you know, for. 30 or 40 years, you know, writers have spent their time kind of running a line that, you know, the overtly political novel is a bad novel, you know, that somehow, yeah. you know, to write political novels was to write bad fiction, and there's a kind of move away from that now. But what's really odd to me is that that's, that's a very recent phenomenon, that notion that the political novel, that the activist novel is a bad novel. I mean, you go back to Steinbeck, you go back to Dickens, you go back to any of those kind of writers who were writing before about 1960 or 1970, or even 1980, and you, you have a quite clear notion that one of the novel's central purposes is a kind of activism, you know. And, and I think books like this re-embrace that and take it in, take it further. It's fantastic. I think it's true, and I think science fiction has more consciously and deliberately embraced this in the last ten years. Uh, and I think this is part of what uh, we do have to thank not only women writers, but to but, but, but to non-binary writers. To gen- I mean, one of the more interesting. Uh, uh, variations on the Generation Starship was River Solomon, uh, Unkindness. Oh, that's a yeah. It's a terrific book, and it's, from a science fictional point of view, a very traditional plot reimagined in a very politically uh, provocative and, uh, and radical and passionate way. I'm curious about something about this book, because I mean, I think it's interesting in, these con- in this context, and that is, um, you know, Newitz has told a engaging genderqueer story about a fight for reproductive and other rights, which is powerful and works. Did you, anybody feel that the, if you like, the, the future that she showed through the character Morshin was all, almost too comically dark to, to, to sit with the rest of the book? Or did you, because it, it becomes almost 
an absurdist abstract kind of a, a future that she talks about, at least to my reading of it, you know, where, where you are breeding women without hands for various reasons and all this kind of thing. And that struck me as being almost sort of disconnected from the reality of the story she had. Did it, what did you, you, what did you guys think of it? I mean, I, and, and I, I say the very statement that I just made, you guys probably tells you the problem with asking this because I thought the expressions of gender in the book were terrific, but that was something that, that, that pulled me up a little. Silence. Oh, no, I, I wasn't troubled by, by the I, conception of the future. I, I mean, I, it seemed, it seemed, as you say, it's it's an incredibly dark and violent vision of the future. Mm. It seemed of a piece mm. with the book as a whole. I mean, something we haven't talked about, um, I'll let other people respond and I'll say that in a moment, sorry. No, no, go ahead, James. No, no I was going to say, we want to hear it, yeah. <laughs> or what I was going to say is that one of the things that I do think is interesting about the book is that sense that what the book embodies at some level and gives shape to is something that happens once you start questioning and deconstructing a whole series of things around the constitutive psychological and political structures of our world. So once we start deconstructing gender, once we start deconstructing gender relations, a series of things like that, it's not just the present and the future which are thrown into transformation. You know, we, we transform the past because we learn to see it very, very differently. And I do think that the book enacts that understanding in a very powerful and quite interesting way. I mean, well, one of the things that science fiction does is invent other, other societies. And to some extent, uh, this is one of the things that's always fascinating me about the relationship between science fiction and historical fiction. Both are involved in extrapolation. One is extrapolation based on our present projecting some sort of future and, and, and a variety of futures. The other is extrapolating backward because no matter how much research you're doing your your version of the past is a rhetorical construct from your idea of the present um and when it's fairly uh evident that that's what's going on and i think it's what's going on in uh, the future of another timeline i think it's fine uh, i think when you try to represent this as the only authentic version of the past is when you get into trouble because uh, mm-hmm. the past is infinite is, is as infinitely malleable as the future is and, and Jonathan, going back, and I did think about your previous question, Jonathan, about the future and whether how realistic it is. I, I didn't have a particular problem of it. I've seen a riff of that, a similar riff, uh, Megan Ellison's uh, trilogy based in an apocalyptic near future has a similar type of uh, queen structure where there's one woman, uh, but but actually one that's um, a little bit more positive in that it's 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 women who are running away from a misogynist society who are setting up that system rather than because because uh, most because the birth rates are so low but uh, so yeah look I, i'm not i'm not against uh, that i mean yes it's, it's a very much broad brush but the book would be another 200 pages long if it had to provide. Right. i mean it's, it, it has to sacrifice somewhere you know I, and, and i so I, I, you've got to give writers i think some sort of a uh, leniency on that sort of thing because yeah because otherwise it, uh, because her other option is just not to do it 
is not to which have is, that character at all, which I think would would, would 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 undercut the book to an extent. So you know, because it adds what what she does is add further uh, tension. Ups the, she ups the stakes. She appears literally halfway through the novel, so she's there to up uh-huh. the ante, and she does that very well. And it adds a sense of weirdness to it too, you know. And it's a bit of a rule-breaking situation. I liked it, yes. I, I, that's me, a long-winded way of saying I liked it. Just to underline what you said about she could have explored, there are a lot of places in this novel where she could have expanded, added chapters. One of the things, and this is partly my bias as a reviewer with deadlines and lots of books in the pile, the book is 350 pages long. That's fine. It's not 700 pages <laughs> yes. long. It's not 400 yes. pages long. It, it pretty much does what it wants to do and gets out. And I really appreciate writers who get out when they're done. Can I just say, one thing we haven't spoken about, I, first off, Gary, 100%. You know, I'm a strong believer in... No novel should be more than 60,000 words. Anyway, uh, that's a, <laughs> yeah. I can quibble on that one. But um, we haven't spoken about punk music. Or punk rock, because I know nothing about it. I'm not a punk person, but it's clearly important to this book. We've barely spoken about it, and I assumed one of you three would say something about it, but you haven't, so I'm bringing it up. I'm aware that the Riot Girls movement was a very powerful movement among people, younger people than myself who who were a part of it, and it was a kind of... I, I, I don't know the music. I haven't listened to the music. I know people who love the music, and it was a kind of specific, as far as I can gather, specific California kind of punk rock, which was a little bit different from what you might have been getting in New York or what you might have been getting in Seattle. But it was extremely uh, angry and borderline violent. Because my knowledge at that time is Eric Clapton and Brian Adams. So, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm coming from... I'm coming you're, from you're the behind. anti-punk. Okay. <laughs> yes. So, uh, yeah, because, I, look, I, I could have just believed that Great Apes, I think that's the name of the band, is yeah. that the yeah. name? Or, yeah, they, for all I know, they're real. So when, when you find out at the end they're not, uh, they've been edited out of history, which I, which is a neat little thing that occurs at the end. Uh, yeah, it was a bit of a surprise to me. I assume it will be a surprise to absolutely no one else. I don't know. The Grape Ape was – all I knew about the Grape Ape was I think it was an animated cartoon series sometime during the 90s, which maybe. Maybe a subtle illusion on, on, on Annalie Newitz's part, but I don't know. I guess I should say, as the ringmaster here to some degree, that we're, we're, we're sort of well into an hour or so on this book, which says a lot about how interesting it is and how, how there's a lot to unpack. But perhaps is there anything specific you all would like to touch on before we want, you know, we wind up? Uh, I'll just go around starting with you, Gary. Are there any particular points that left untouched on? I'm not sure that there's anything we've uh, we've overlooked entirely. I think that uh, we probably haven't really focused as much as we should on character. I think uh, Beth is, in particular, a fascinating, well-rounded, believable, pained character. And I think one of the things that uh, that comes across in her more than in in the, in the time travelers, the time travelers, you know, it's a geoscientist and she's uh, she's observing history and so forth. Beth is experiencing adolescence. She's experiencing, uh, as I mentioned earlier, a completely nuts father. Um, And she's dealing with a sort of balance between depression and fury that I suspect is utterly believable and I find as a character uh, completely endearing. I find her, in in many ways, the emotional focus of the entire novel. Ian? 
only to say uh, that a hallmark of a good book is when you go and research stuff after you finished reading it, which I did. So she, so uh, New It's at the End has uh, sort of uh, research notes on Comstock, etc. But I went and did my own reading, and uh, and I think that's great. That that, that that I and I just I actually checked up the Great Apes as well, and also saw that animated uh, thing from the nineties. So I, that's where I figured out. Oh, okay, not mm. not, not a real band. But, uh, yeah, no, that's, that's the thing. It, it um, got me to do a bit of research. And I agree with Gary. The characters are really sympathetic, well-rounded, and uh, work well on the page. And James? Oh, I, I love Ian's notion of the uh, Google theory of aesthetic value. <laughs> um, uh, yes, yeah, look, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I enjoyed it um, very much. I particularly liked the... As I said earlier, the the, the Californian sections, um, which I thought, you know, uh, they had a real kind of immediacy and I guess a kind of affection that I really, really liked, despite a lot of what being in them is very negative. You know, you had a sense that this was a world that the writer knew and, uh, and cared about. But I think what I really liked about the book was that sense, and this is kind of what Gary was saying when he said it was only 300 pages long, is that sense that it's a book that's been written with a direct, you know, and quite deliberate engagement with the present moment, you know, and then I think some things flow out from that which are occasionally a bit frustrating about it, but, I mean, simultaneously, I love that sense of really energetic, excited kind of engagement with the moment and that the book is kind of surfing the kind of bleeding edge of what's going on. I mean, it's one of those books that feels like it's been written and gotten into print in about three months. And I think yeah. that that sense, you know, and, and to be honest, some of the slight kind of you know, raggedness is not quite the right word, but that sense of the kind of sketchiness of some of it is actually part of what gives it that kind of immediacy and that, and that sense of, you know, of kind of real, you know, this is a book of, you know, not of five minutes ago, this is a book of right now. And, and I thought that was really, really... Mm exciting to kind of be in touch with yeah i think i would probably echo a similar sentiment you know it was a book that i was eager to read i'd enjoyed autonomous uh i thought it was a fine debut with a flaw or two in it but a a fine debut this i thought I mean, it was a book that I uh, that at times, as you 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 all know, I struggled with reading a little, little bit. I was bouncing around in, at, at, at times, but ended up finding rewarding. And what I find interesting about it is, it's that that book that the more you talk about it afterwards, the more interesting it becomes, rather yeah. than the less interesting it becomes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the timeliness of it is exactly what makes it uh, deeply attractive. If you are interested in reading science fiction of 2019 this feels like exactly that kind of a story i mean if i I would even go so far as because i was thinking about this when you were talking ian that almost i almost would have liked the 1992 sections to be 2018 sections or 2019 sections to even to amplify that even more though i understand why they're 1992 sections so it's a book that i would happily recommend to anybody you know you know to go out and read and of course this podcast hopefully will go out today and the book comes out this coming week. So that's timely. So I do, you know, it, it will be out in the world, but for the moment we might wind up because I suspect we could talk for another hour without too much difficulty. We will be back in about a month with another episode where we talk about another book, which we will announce between now and then. 
But for the moment, gentlemen, thank you for making time to talk today. Thank you, James. Thank you for asking me. Thank you, Ian. It's been a pleasure. And thank you, Gary. And we'll be back with something else in between, I presume. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> anyway, Almost it's been fun. And, and, uh, and, and Ian and James, you're always delighted. And, and, and never get to see you guys because you're in Australia. Nobody's going to World Fantasy this year. Except I just put my video on so now you can see. Oh, there world. you are. Okay, hi. <laughs> <laughs> so it's great to talk to you guys. And, uh, have, a, have a wonderful time on the wrong side of the world. <laughs> Well, you know, the other side of the world. (laughs) Wrong side. There's three of us here, Gary.